Hi, everybody. This is Jess Von Bank, and thank you for listening to another episode of The Now of Work. We're well into 2022, what we're calling the Year of the Human here at LeapGen for lots of good reasons. It was always about people first workforce experience, better empowering, developing, and unleashing your people. Uh, this year, it feels more important more mission critical than ever. And we're choosing conversations and guests that can help us explain not just why we know why, but how, how to do that, how to better serve people. That's why I'm so excited to have a new guest on our show today. Deepa, thank you for joining me. Deepa is the co-founder of Information. I would love you to say hi to our listeners and explain uh, Information and why you're doing the work that you're doing, which is so, so important. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jess. Um, yes, we started Information about a year ago. So it, we are a year in existence, uh, literally this month. And so that's exciting to be a new company in this space. We focus on providing safe, brave, and new space for women of color. Um, and it just feels so necessary and so needed right now. Um, and I'm sure that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time. But it's just, we're in a moment where we need more of come the conversation, how the workplace is really different for us. And that this idea that the workplace is a meritocracy and that it shows up the same way for all of us is a very, very flawed thinking and actually not only hurts women of color, but hurts all of us because work isn't working for everybody. So that is what oh we try God. to focus on. Oh, I could not agree more. I can't wait for this conversation. I think that's really important at LeapGen. We understand uh, personalization and individualization. We do a lot of work around personas and, and people data to more deeply understand from a perspective of empathy, from a perspective of design, to understand what works and what doesn't work for people. And then to realize that there's no peanut butter spread. There are no yes. blanket statements that can be made about the way different people experience their own work or the way an employee journey looks for different people. And that can be by job role and function and geography and employment status, whether I'm full-time or part-time, um, the part of the company I work in, there are microcultures. But we cannot forget, we cannot forget all of the demographics, all of the data points, all of the things that make our experience of work very personal and individual for us. And so we can't forget, yeah. we, we literally cannot forget race, gender, ability level, other things that make our experience of work very unique to us, for better or for worse, but unfortunately for marginalized, underrepresented undervoiced, if mm -hmm. that's a word, I'm going to make it a word sure. uh, for some people who don't yeah. participate or can't participate in the workplace in the same way. Yeah. Why is that so important to understand that my experience, fill in the blank, whatever makes me, me, my experience of work isn't the same as yours. I think it's so important because we come from a place where the workplace is supposed to be neutral, or at least that's what many of us are told, right? So if you work hard, you're going to get to the, you know, you're going to rise and that's all you need to do is just put your head down and work hard and, and everything will be okay. And I think that sets up a lot of people for struggle because part of, you know, my work, not part of all of my work right now feels like it is about talking about the structure and how the structure is differentiated and then the structure 
has its flaws and it's okay to talk about that. And so I think it's important to understand that the experience is different because if we don't understand it's different, we're not gonna make it better. Um, I've also written a book, it comes out March 1st called The First, The Few, The Only. It's on women of color in corporate America. And I raise it because there's a story in it that I love and it is a great explanation for this. I interviewed Renee Myers, who's a good friend and she's uh, at Netflix, right? The, the chief inclusion officer, um, uh, VP of inclusion at, at Netflix. And um, when we sat down to talk about the, color, the experience of women of color at work, one of the things she said to me, and I thought she was gonna talk about, you know, literally women of color at work, we started talking about airplane design. And she was explaining how airplanes weren't, you know, designed for women or women of color. And so as a result, they, they you know, show up differently for us. And as we continue to unpack that conversation and, and in the book, you'll see, Renee is actually tall. I'm five one. So my experience of getting on a plane is completely different than hers and completely different than most of the white men I sit next to. So I spent 20 years in corporate America as a consultant, right? I lived out of a suitcase in sometimes three cities a week. The 20 minutes before I would get on the plane were really anxiety provoking because I would have to get on the plane, put my rolly board right above my head. And that process, because I'm short, was a challenge. And yet that experience, that anxiety, how that shows up for me is very different than someone who's sitting next to me, a white man who's sitting next to me or anybody who's sitting next to me who's tall, right? It's a very different experience. And so we had this great dialogue about how, how the airplane wasn't designed with us in mind. And in the, same, in the same way, I believe the workplace wasn't designed for a lot of women, but especially for women of color, because we weren't there when it was originally designed. And so it makes sense that it doesn't work for us, or it doesn't really accommodate everything that we need. And it's okay to talk about how it needs to evolve and change. And so I like that analogy because it hits home for a lot of people who don't understand, like, what does that mean? Or what does that look like? That's a great analogy. And I've said that many times myself from the perspective of a working mom, but you can apply that to any perspective that is different. Work is a system. It's a set of structures and systems. There are, there's infrastructure, there's design, uh, there's organizational design um, and who designed it and who it was designed for is really important to understand because when the pandemic hit and people fell out of the workforce, pay attention to who fell out first, women and women caregivers, Mm -hmm. working moms in particular, but all caregivers. Pay attention to, because the the pressure that was put on the seams of the system, it broke, it broke, and for good reason, it wasn't designed for us. The system of work wasn't designed for certain people. And I think it's absolutely true about women and women of color in particular. You can take almost any statistic related to the pandemic or related to talent issues or struggles at work. And it's always worse, Mm -hmm. (laughs) any statistic, I'll challenge anybody to prove me wrong. It's always worse for women, Mm -hmm. worse for women of color Mm -hmm. and worse for women who have children, especially Mm -hmm. if there are women of color who have children. Like that's always like, just roll out the statistic and and it's exacerbated uh, the um, the more barriers you, you face. Um, and so that's a really inclusive approach that needs to be taken, um, by leadership. And, and I think there's, there's a couple of what you used the word accommodation. I'm thinking about where I want to go next, Mm. because I love this conversation. You used the word accommodation. That's Mm -hmm. one approach. Allyship is another approach. Championship is a, Mm -hmm. is different in my mind than allyship. And I'd love to talk to you about that, but but who cares about the word? We need to fix this. Yeah. Um, there's 
an article that I refer to a lot that was published by the New York Times last July, I believe, as every organization was hoping for the, you know, that we were nearing the end of COVID and offices were going to be able to open back up. We know that didn't happen the way everybody hoped, but everybody was planning their return to office programs. Every, kids are going to go back to school. Daycares are reopening. That means offices can reopen. And everybody's planning this big grand yes, reopening yeah. of their physical office environments. 3% of Black women said they wanted to go back to the physical office. Yes, yeah. 3%. Please, every business leader, every people leader, everybody understand why that statistic, 3%. Imagine, imagine the experience, the microaggressions, the macroaggressions. What said, I don't want to go back to the office. You have to ask yourself that question because we have problems that we haven't faced yet. Um, and those are the experience things that we can fix if only we invite those voices to the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, there were a number of things you said in the last couple of um, statements. So one is, you know, yes, a lot of women, uh, moms, right, uh, left the workforce. But if you look at the data around women of color, um, and especially black women, it's, it's, you know, as high in competing levels, in some cases, some people say even higher, we just don't even have data because people don't pay attention. Um, but a lot of women, women of color are leaving the workforce. And we're finding um, also that they're not necessarily going to a different job, they're in fact, creating their own companies and creating cultures that actually work for them. So I think that that's like a whole, its own conversation. Um, the second thing is, although, you know, I have a lot of debate on whether words are, matter or not, and that having just written a book, like, you know, I'm, I'm very caught up in that. For me, the word I like, really like is co-conspirator, and it's the word that we use mm -hmm. um, in information. It's also the, the word I use in the book, because we want, we want people to move beyond allyship and being a bystander to actually being a co-conspirator. And to me, being a co-conspirator is not just intervening when something happens, it's actually co-conspiring to create a new. And that is part of what I believe has to happen. It's not, you know, accommodation is really, um, to me, not, not the concept. It's, I, I think we need to remake the table. I think we need to remake the process. I think we, you know, define success and even how you rise in companies in very broken ways that aren't healthy for anybody. I mean, all of that has to be redesigned. So it's not just putting people into the flow and getting more women of color in the top seats. I actually don't think uh, that works. I mean, I interviewed 500 women of color in writing the book. And one of the biggest lessons learned was they all thought we'll get to the seat of power and then we'll do it our way. And one, you know, that very rarely happens because there's more pressure when you get to the top to do it the standard way. And two, so many of them were ill. Almost two out of three of the women of color I interviewed were ill with these undiagnosable illnesses as a result of stress of being in structures that don't see and hear them and don't, you know, in that way, don't accommodate them. But yeah, just don't necessarily um, work for how I think we, we lead, you know, and I, I believe women and women of color lead differently and given space to do that, we would show up differently and have different things in place that again, work for all of us. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, part of your mission is to create, I think you said both safe space and brave space. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the statistic I mentioned, you know, that's if, if a woman of color were able to be honest, you know, could even answer a yes. question like that. Do you feel safe or comfortable coming back to work? And that was, that was a COVID question, I'm yes. sure. And when they answered it, I'm sure they meant it in a different way. No, I don't feel safe or comfortable going back to work. I never did. Yes. I can imagine there was a little bit of that. If they even felt uh, comfortable enough to answer the question honestly. And so creating space and, and a supportive environment where somebody can give open, honest feedback about 
what makes them about psychological safety, mm-hmm. about um, culture and behaviors. We talk a lot about cultures of belonging. I, you know, I think about the acronym uh, that we all use, and there's there's a few versions of it: DNI, diversity and inclusion. I use DEI a lot to add equity to the conversation. The latest I heard is Jedi, mm-hmm. justice, Correct. equity, diversity, inclusion. I love all of them. I love all of them. I think about the order of the acronym. Mm-hmm. In other words, the order in which you do the work. Please don't recruit for diversity, hire for diversity, promote and create succession plans for diversity alone. If you have not done the work to create an, env- an environment where that where diversity can thrive. Absolutely. If you hire somebody into your current environment because check the box, now we're diverse, we've put somebody at the table, on the board, on the leadership team that meets diversity criteria. If you haven't created a culture of belonging, if you haven't ensured you have inclusive feedback mechanisms, communication channels, that that's a safe place where open, honest conversation can be had from voices you haven't heard from before, you're not going to reap the benefits of true diversity because they're not going to feel like they can show up um, in, in a place without judgment, without adverse impact, that feels safe, where they can thrive, where they can challenge. So you have to do the other work first, then invite diversity in because it has a chance to flower and flourish and thrive. That's my thinking anyway. I'd love to know how you're advising um, in in that regard. Uh, Yes, put women in the room, put women of color at the table, but please let let them do what they need to do and want to do. Yeah, I think there's a a number of things to unpack there. So one is we just did some research this fall with Billie Jean King, and we had a TED Talk come out very recently on the same topic. Um, And that research found that most of the women of color we spoke with feel like DE&I, in in the report we called it, that isn't working in any sort of way. I mean, at, at rates that were alarming. Um, and so, and, and you know, I, in my interviews myself, one of the white men I spoke with said he actually thinks that, um, that DE&I is in some form of, in some companies is a form of propaganda, right? And I think actually a lot of the women of color we spoke with felt that same sort of way. So it's a checkbox. It's just something we say we do, but we don't really mean. So I think that's real. Secondly, I think a lot of women of color who come to the information community, you know, are very senior in their roles and they're in new DE&I roles in a lot of cases three months in and the things that were promised to them are not there. And in fact, there's a lot being put on their lap that actually you know, is beyond the scope of work that they were hired to do or they are but one person or have a two person team. The mandate doesn't, doesn't come with a job. And I think that's really you know, the second part of this that we need to rewrite those jobs. We need to make sure that we understand what those roles entail and that the work is company-wide. It's not just one person's gonna come in and be a savior. And we have a lot of history in this country of, of putting that sort of work, the savior work on black women, especially. And so there's a a big conversation there. How we're looking at it. um, So we are, uh, you know, quietly small in small sorts of ways, but about to announce some big initiatives around placing women of color in the C-suite and on boards. And part of our work is that we don't just want to place them. So one thing is we will work with companies to make sure cultures are ready because not all cultures are ready for women of color to show up in all their excellence. And we don't want to put women of color in places where they can't be in their full glory. But secondly, it's also about supporting them. So again, it's this idea of getting to the seat isn't enough because the seat is broken. 
Um, and in the research we did, we call it, we call the seat a broke ass chair, like the chair that's given or designated or whatever allocated to a woman of color. And I use those words intentionally, like a lot of the time companies will say, well, we want that to be a, a chair for a woman of color. That in itself is flawed thinking and sets us up for a really bad scenario. But that seat itself is flawed because that woman isn't empowered, that woman is allowed to really bring everything. It's much more of a symbolic sort of measure. And so we need to change what that means. But a lot of our work is based on the fact that we want to place the women of color in places where they're going to be successful, but it's also a change. They can't do it by themselves. So we actually want to provide coaching, what we call wrapper services for a few years to come, both for the woman herself, but also for someone on the executive team or on the board so that there is a there is also coaching happening for the white male executives or whoever is sitting in the seat of power to understand how to create space. Like that's part of this exercise is, is not just making space for women of color, but actually creating new space for all of us so that more people can show up as their full selves. And so that is the work of all of us. Um, and not most, and most of us don't know how to do that because we're not taught to do that. We're just taught to rise in the structures we're in and be really excited that we've gotten to the senior role. And that's actually the problem. We're, we're competing and we're aspiring, I think, to the wrong things. And that's, I really think, what COVID in the last you know, few years have, have unpacked for us. We are all working in a very flawed system, working harder, doing more, trying harder, right? Um, thinking that there's scarcity in the model. There's this, you know, we're competing against each other. And all of those things set us up for uh, big health issues, unhappiness, but also set us up for not changing what needs to be changed within the structure itself. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out um, and saying that we, because there is, I think you're right, there's this, um, uh, I don't know, mystique or sort of like glory or martyrdom that we put on breaking the glass ceiling and blazing a trail and, and breaking the system, or like you say, rising up in the, in the system that exists. That sounds, you know, it sounds like soldiering. It sounds brave and, and all, but that is mm -hmm. unsafe, mm -hmm. exhausting, not necessarily effective. And so I really like the point about creating something new mm -hmm. that does work. Now that's going to meet resistance uh, because new is different. It's unknown. So people have to learn it. Uh, even if they're supportive, it's it's new and different. Therefore, it needs to be learned, and and everybody needs to learn some new, you know, modus operandi. So, what are some of the ways that organizations and leadership teams can think about um, the culture work that would be required to say yes, agree, new is better, and we're all going to be better in the end for inviting a, a, a voice, a person, lived experiences, a, a mind, a brain that, that can add incredible value to this conversation. We're gonna make space for that, but it takes this from all of us to make that culture change. Do, do you, can you give us, I know this is a whole program. Yeah, and, that's a whole, that's a big question. That, that's, a, you know, that's months of work in itself. I think, um, you know, maybe just picking a, a couple of threads and we can see where it goes. I think one is understanding that culture change happens at all levels. And I think that, you know, we're still in this dance of whether or not we believe all culture change happens at the sea level. And I think you need the executive team to be bought in because without them, you can't do it. But them alone will not change culture. Um, I think really understanding that culture for a lot of employees happens at a peer-to-peer -peer level and a peer-to-manager level. That is really where culture is defined, where why people are leaving. It's not because they're saying their CEO isn't, you know, isn't saying the right things. That is some of it. Um, 
Um, but it's mostly because my manager doesn't get me. My manager doesn't understand my ma manager's talking over me, doesn't pay me in the right ways. It, those conversations have to happen much more at a manager level. So I think it's understanding that, you know, you mentioned a lot of uh, black women in particular, but women of color don't want to go back after you know, go back to work. And we're finding that as well. At the same time, we're finding that they really struggle with being in zoom or being in these virtual meetings, because that it, it creates different issues, right? Being talked over finding it really hard to connect and network with people who don't look or sound like them is now even harder. Um, so I think it's really understanding the challenges as well, you know, at a manager level, but also understanding what your team really needs and listening. Um, I really coach a lot of people that this is about really giving yourself permission to make mistakes, you know, to try. Um, you're not going to get it right the first time. It's taken centuries for us to get here, but realize that you have to be willing to be brave and be bold and try some new things, um, say the wrong thing to get to the right thing. And that it's a process, right? It's, it's not do these 10 things because by the way, if I could give you a checklist of 10 things, every company would be doing them. That, that's, it's not, that's not what this work is. And I also think work around race is very heart-driven. It's very personal. It's, it's more complicated than just focusing on gender. So that's why this intersectionality of women of color and what the experience of, of being a woman of color at work um, is about and you know what my work is about is unpacking that is so complicated and so different but also really important that uh, not non you know women of color understand is because talking about race is uncomfortable for most people right and um, although we can say like if I you know I have a daughter so I want the workplace to be better we can't always put ourselves in a headspace for what it's like to be a, a person of a different race for whatever reason in America that is very complicated. Um, and so, um, because of our history there, right? Not, not whatever reason, but that we don't even want to begin to put our toe in that sort of conversation. And so um, this work is just harder and we need to understand that and give out, have patience for that. So for me, a lot of what I talk about is giving ourselves permission to try, realizing it happens at all levels and really understanding, you know, at the level that you're at, what is happening to the people in your community or on your team and what is their experience like and really listening in very new ways. I think that, yeah, that's fantastic. It's really empathy, empathy, empathy. I think that we, we do need to give each other grace because if, if a woman of color is going to share and articulate why her experience of work or as a leader or you know, what it feels like, what she needs to overcome in order to speak up or to, there's a lot of bravery involved. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, maybe even self-doubt. I could be the most confident woman in the world, mm -hmm. but, but overcoming um, your experiences of marginalization, of underrepresentation, of being the first, mm -hmm. the few, the only, that is a way different experience. Mm -hmm. And so there's like, if I'm brave enough to, to speak up and to participate, like I hope the person I'm sharing with or the leadership team I'm sharing with or the construct that I'm showing up in, you've got to meet me halfway. You've got to show me grace. You've got to probably demonstrate some humility, be willing to ask questions, but not idiotic questions. Like I, like, I, I, there's so much in that reaction moment, that, that moment that happens um, when somebody shows up in a brave way. Um, I think it's, I, I think it's really important that the opposite, that the listener, that the opposite person understands that this is a moment um, for them and how you respond, whether or not you judge, how you react, 
um, it, it matters a lot because that gives me permission to keep going and do this again, or it shuts it down right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. No, I mean, so much there, you know, the, the most straightforward, the simplest way I have this conversation is in the, in, in discussions of retaliation. So many of the women of color I spoke with when they do speak up, right. And formally speak up, I'm not talking about, um, you know, an interaction that happens in an office and they're not, you know, it's uncomfortable. They're not sure what to do. Like I'm talking about clear hundred percent racism, mm -hmm. um, no doubt about it in their minds. And maybe the people around them, when they go to HR, the system usually bites them back because the processes we have in place don't actually support women of color telling their truth, right? We, we actually don't have systems to actually take in reporting racism. Like we're, some companies are starting to, but we don't have a way to do that. The people sitting in the seats don't understand racism themselves. So how can they possibly understand Mm -hmm. what that looks like. And so I think there's so much to what the question you're asking me or the underlying there, there is so much work on the company side where we actually need to make um, the process, not about protecting the company and liability, but really listening and understanding in a different way, which is an entirely complicated, not just for women of color, but for everybody. I think for the women who are speaking up, you know, I, had, I was in a dialogue yesterday with a group of women of color and some of them were asking me, um, you know, and this was a first time conversation, so they didn't know me or my work. And they were saying to me, but sometimes it feels self-serving when we speak up or we're, like, what if we are a first, like, how do we all, you know, that's a very hard thing to continually do when it's not well received. And at, sometimes I feel like I don't have the right to ask for those things, even though I know it's not fair. Um, and so, both sides of the equation are hard. We have women of color who've been taught not to ask for things, to be grateful they're invited to the table, to be thankful, to be trailblazing, all of these things. And who know that if they step outside certain bounds, there is backlash. And so we need to give them more, not just grace, but we need to empower them to tell their truth. That, that's part of what this work is about. And on the company side, we need to make that easier and make space to really listen and realize most companies, most literally, most companies I, I've spoken to have a problem with that because the legal system itself isn't set up to actually do that. And the entire yeah. HR process doesn't, doesn't really support that. So there's an entire redesign that has to happen if we're really talking about dealing with race at work that you know we're just starting to talk about and really understand. And that's just to do the, the bare minimum. I mean, Correct. I think that's a minimum requirement yes. to say we will not the extreme we will cases not retaliate. Yes. We will not and to create sort of a safe, you know, sort of vehicle and 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 way for um, for issues to be reported. The, the long game, I would hope, would be to proactively communicate that we protect you. We have your backs. We have created an environment where you've, and if this does not meet, you know, your expectation, our mutual, our shared expectations of the experience you will have, this is the way you can safely, like that would be that yes. would be going above and beyond. We're not even close, close yeah, to that. No, yet. I mean, but I think, Jess, I think the reason we're not there is because we haven't started with the first step, which was the first question we started with. We haven't accepted the workplace is different for different people. And you can't right. be patient and listen because, again, if you come from the premise that the workplace is the same for everybody, then everyone should just get on with it. And if they're not excelling or they're not, you know, succeeding or they're having issues, it's about them. And that is the problem. That is the setup that we do to women of color. We don't admit the system is flawed. And as a result, so many of the women of color I meet and my, me myself, I took that in. I ended up getting sick. I ended up getting, you know, all of the, all of the things that happen when you think it's you yet the system around you has to, has to take, bear some of the responsibility. And that's the dialogue I think we're just starting to have. So I completely agree with you, but I think step one is 
admitting the system, it's not a meritocracy. It's not the same for everybody. And from there, if we're willing to have that discussion, if we're really unwilling to understand what, how is it different for a first or fewer and only or a woman of color, then we can finally get to the fixes. But if we can't even have that, it's all just trying to solve for the, the paper cuts, right? Or the immediate actions, the, the high burn visible activities that are happening or indiscretions that are happening, not at the core of the real culture change that has to happen. If we're getting personal here, which I think we are, <laughs> because these are very personal issues, right? Uh, I, I, I didn't, I actually am having this thought for the first time, but something you said made me think about when women enter the workforce, for me, I'll just speak for me. I did not enter the workforce thinking, you know, what I want to be when I grow up, how I imagine my career will unfold. I never once said, I want to be an advocate. I want to be an advocate for women like me, for my daughters coming up behind me. Never once said that. And I think that was the first sort of slap in the face to, uh, oh, in order for my career to unfold the way I imagine, I actually have to do advocacy work because this shit isn't going to work for me. This isn't going to roll out the way I, I thought it might. In the same way, marginalized, underrepresented uh, groups, women of color, probably did not enter the workforce that saying, I'm going to be a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. What a slap in the face. What is, and that is so unfortunate yep. that yeah. I didn't want to do this work, but if I'm going to thrive, excel, progress, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to see something, say something. That's exhausting. That's not fair, but that's the way it is, unfortunately. So I'm telling the more people we can get to take some of that burden and to say, can we proactively create an environment of safety <laughs> so that that work doesn't sit on you? We own the work. We employ human beings. It's on us to make sure that you don't feel and experience that. Yeah, and I would say, I think it's a little bit more complicated for the women of color I met with, meaning um, because so many of us are the first of you, the only, there is a real sense of responsibility to our community, to our families, to everyone else coming around us, uh, behind us, in front of us, that, that you know, we are responsible. Um, there's a woman I interviewed named Roxy in the book, and she uh, is in a Midwestern company, um, a senior, a senior black woman. And one of the things she shared with me is that there's, she literally is the only black woman, only person of color in her entire company. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a rather large company. And she was saying, you know, when she first got there and she still does, she still struggles with this. And it's something she reprograms every day, but she felt responsible for representing all black people everywhere because many of the people in her department or company had never met another black person and think about that. So she, she filters or changes how she wears her hair, what she eats, how she talks, how she presents, what she shares, because she wants to, she, wants, she said to me, I want, I want to leave them with a good impression. And I, I, I just don't know how much I want to share. And I really do a lot of self-editing and that weight itself, you know, in the book, I call it code switching, but all the extra things that women of color do, I think don't get talked about. And that, that is its own, that is the conversation that needs to be had. But I think I just want to add, like, I agree. I think most of the women of color assumed that they would enter the workplace and it's fair, like, you know, it, it's good. And I'm not going to have those issues. And especially I, I find that with the younger women of color I meet with. 
But I think the other side of this is there's also a great sense of responsibility that does feel different than a lot of the white women I, I meet, that conversation of what I'm responsible for. Um, it's just, I think it's just cultural. I think it's historical. I think it's, it's very rooted in the work that women of color think is theirs to do. And so it's hard because a lot of companies put that work on us. At the same time, I think many of us feel responsible for doing that work. And that's part of the challenge and the dynamic we also have to change. So I'm going to ask every single business leader, HR leader, people leader, everybody listen to this. That's one thing you can do. Listen to this conversation and understand, like re really internalize this, let this soak in. This is really important for you to understand if you have people initiatives, diversity initiatives, any culture work, if any of this is on your plate, and I imagine it is, it's on most of the agendas of, of HR leaders that I speak to, please internalize this. This is really important to understand uh, in order to do the work, in order to really mean this when you make culture, DEI, and human being promises, mm -hmm. uh, understand this perspective, please. So I'm catching you on the afterglow, Deepa, of your TED Talk. Yes. You had a TED Talk. Can you yes. tell me a little bit about that? Yes, it was, uh, it was a joint TED Talk with my business partner, Ra Goddess, uh, at Information. Um, what was really unique, and it came out of the research we did with Billie Jean King, it's called Pow Her Redefined. Um, and it was work that came out of the book. So the sequence was, I was doing research for the book. One of the biggest things I found is as women, we don't help each other. Um, there are a lot of, you know, women of color, when I would say to them, you know, after the, inter you know, at, at 55 minutes of the 60 minute interview, is there anything else I haven't asked you? Their voices would drop, they get really quiet and they would say, can we talk about how we don't help each other. And it was white women don't help us. But then as we unpacked that conversation, it was also we don't help each other. Um, I didn't go as far to in that in the book. And so that became the research we did with Billie Jean King and as information. And what we have found and what's and, and a lot of that comes from this idea of scarcity. There's one seat so we're all competing for and that's the kind of mentality at a very simple level, much more to it. You know, it's a 60 page report, but that's kind of really the gist of it. And so that report came out. We got a call from Ted 24 hours later, and we had 12 days to prep over Thanksgiving to pull off a joint TED Talk. So it came out yesterday. Um, I, I you know, want to say it's life changing in that that getting on that sort of stage, and I have only left corporate a year and a half ago, is not is not. It's kind of almost imaginable where my where my life is now. Um, it's also really interesting in. Um, you know, not having the, the time to prep. So there were a few speakers that came after us and she said she had 14 months to prepare and we had 12 days. So it was kind of like we left, you know, with what we believed, you know, the work was. And Ron, I really believe this wasn't about us. Like how often do women of color get on a stage like that? And to be able, and to be able to tell our truth. So if you do watch the TED Talk, it's very... Um, we call it getting real, like we are telling you what's not working for us in our own voice. And I don't think um, we usually reward women and women of color for doing that. And so even the tone of the talk feels different. And so it was a very special moment. Um, we debriefed with our information community yesterday. And I really don't think that was just about us. Yes, it was like nerves and all of those things. But that was about giving voice to what women of color are facing at work, especially in corporate spaces that, um, to your point, you brought up, like, it's not usually rewarded to tell our truth. And there's backlash to, that comes with it and so it was a really unique opportunity and a really humbling opportunity and we'll see what comes of it it's it's I think in just 
Um, I haven't looked this, I haven't looked in the last few hours, but this morning it was almost up to 300,000 views in just 24 hours. So it's, it's, it's climbing up there. So, yes. I feel like I've, I've, I met you, what, what, do you, do you remember when one day it's going to be like, have you ever met Oprah? I'm going to be like, I met Deepa. <laughs> Thank I you. caught you right on the cusp of yeah. fame. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, so honestly, I think the work is just, sorry, I, was say, I, I just think it's the work, right? The work is yeah. just so needed right now. So I think that's really what it's about. Well, and thank you. Thank you for doing the work. As we've already said, it's not easy. It does feel like a responsibility. It feels, uh, and it's not always rewarding. I hope that TED Talk was like super, I, I can like I can already tell this is gonna be a huge moment for you. Uh, and I'm so happy for you, but it doesn't always feel like that. Sometimes you're in the trenches and it feels like you're you know, pouring your guts on the table with nothing back, nothing back, but please know, when you do this work, you don't know the half of it. You you probably know one woman in a thousand yeah. um, who are actually receiving the full impact, the full um, sort of payback moment that you're trying to create. You won't know about all of it. You'll hear some of it and that'll be enough to keep you going, but know that there's a multitude. There are generations of women benefiting from your voice and the work you're doing. So from me to you, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for all you're doing. We, I mean, so much of what Ron and I talked about is, um, she calls it rehumanizing re work. Um, I, I question if there was a, any humanity in it in the first place, um, but it's really, it's the same, it's kindred work and we need more of us doing it because although we're focused on women of color, to your point, it's about making work work from all people and we need many voices in that. We need even more women of color voices in that. It's not just about Ron and I and, you know, the handful of people I know that are speaking about it. It's, we need more of us to have space and courage and bravery in telling our stories. Thank you, Deepa. I so appreciate you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm going to send this episode personally to like a billion people. Like, listen, listen to this. You have to. <laughs> thank you, Deepa. Thank have you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you.